Welcome to The Wild Feather. Today, I am speaking with a guest who is really a treasure. She has been a founder, she's been an accelerator manager, and now is a VC partner. She has a multi-view perspective, which gives her breadth of wisdom. She has a knack for networking, which has created amazing opportunities in her life. She's vivacious, she has contagious energy, and she is an absolute pleasure to talk with. So let's get started. I am beyond excited and thrilled to have Bryony, Bryony Cooper with us today. She has an amazing story. It's fascinating. I can't wait to share uh, for her to share. Uh, and she has such a unique background, I think, from where she started. But um, she's pl- she's kind of run the gamut. So she was a founder of a startup and then was part of an accelerator. And now she is a... VC. She's part of a VC firm. So she's investing and she's lived everywhere all over the world and has um, some remarkable advice and things to say. So without further ado, Bryony, welcome to the show. And I can't wait to hear your journey. So uh, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Brooke. I'm happy to be here and happy to dig into it. Yay. So uh, let's start from the beginning because uh, you have a unique story. You were a professional singer. And at what age did you start singing? And tell us, start there. Sure. Um, I started singing uh, just for fun around the age of 12. Um, I loved it. I would do karaoke whenever I could. Um, and as soon as I turned 16, I became professional or semi-professional as I was still studying. Um, I got myself an agent and a manager and I used to do gigs every weekend. I'd, you know, haul my parents around with a full PA sound system. And uh, yeah, that was how I made my first money. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, what kind of singing? My favorite is jazz and blues. Um, But back then I was doing a lot of cover songs, depending on what the audience wanted. So everything from like pop and rock from the 50s right up to modern stuff. Um, But yeah, I'd I'd say my voice is pretty versatile. And I recorded three albums back then as well. So I was definitely all in. Are they still out there? You can find some stuff on SoundCloud. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm totally going to look it up. That's awesome. Okay. So you're on this professional singer, like going to be this rock star slash jazz star, whatever it may be. Uh, And how in the world did you make the pivot into a startup? Like those are two vastly (laughs) different worlds. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a big pivot. And I was not even kind of doing a music tech startup or anything like that. Um, the thing is, I, I've always been very creative. So I was not from a tech background at all. I studied creative writing at university and my first kind of real job, if you could say, you know, in an office or outside of the singing world was, um, as a copywriter. Um, but after I'd done the professional singing for seven years alongside my studies and alongside my first office job, I, I started to lose the passion for it. And I started to kind of just, you know, get 
get a, a hankering to do something else or something completely different. And I felt like I'd lived that dream to the fullest that I could. As I mentioned, I did a lot of recording. I performed at some really legendary music venues. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted more. And so I moved to London and I just had to take whatever job I could to pay the bills. And that set me on a different path. Um, but yeah, ever since my first job, I've been working with SMEs, so with small businesses and with networking. My very first job was at the place called the Business Club that connects small business owners with each other and they kind of do a oh. service trade exchange. So, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of introduced me to the world of entrepreneurship and meeting a lot of freelancers and small business owners. So I guess, yeah, my entrepreneurial spirit also like sort them out. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So then what was the company that you started? Did you have an aha moment or a light bulb that went on that you were like, oh, I want to build this? Yeah. Well, it, once we got on that journey, so my, my old co-founder and I, he was really the, the ideas guy. He was always coming up with new ideas and he used to be my, my colleague. Um, when I was copywriting, he was doing web design, um, for a mm. web development agency. So our first company was not a startup, but a small agency, um, doing web design and development. And then I ended up hiring a small team of copywriters to populate, you know, content on the websites and do search engine optimization. So we created a small business together doing that and had a team of 10. And it was whilst we were working on that project that all these ideas came out of his, his brain. Um, and one of them ended up sticking and that became our first startup. Um, and I didn't know anything about the world of startups back then. I kind of had to learn everything as I went, but I was just naturally more of a people person than he was because, you know, as it's quite often with, with tech guys that they're a bit more shy or not so social. Right, um, right. so I very naturally adapted this managerial role and, um, I ended up doing all the key account management. And of course, when it came to the point of pitching to investors, that was a very natural step for me because I was already so used to speaking on stage or singing on stage <laughs> that it was just a small leap, you know, to, to start talking about business instead of singing. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> did you raise funding? We did. And this is actually one of my accolades that I'm very proud of. I raised investment on my first ever pitch when I had never pitched That's before. Amazing. I know it's really, it's not so common, but we, we got very lucky, I guess. Um, yeah, we applied to a competition that we found online called seed camp. That's, that's well known in Europe. Um, and the prize money was 50,000 euros and we didn't actually win the finals, but there was an investor in the audience who really liked our pitch and he was in Berlin. So that's actually when I made the move from London to Berlin. Um, and he offered us, um, 75,000 euros or about $90,000 as our kind of pre-seed investment to kick things off. Um, yeah, so we moved over and took part in a kind of company builder incubator program for six months with that investor and that set us on our journey and we went on to raise another 2 million. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> That's incredible. I don't, uh, I think there's only one other person that I know of that has gotten money in their like first three or four pitches. Like that's incredible. That's remarkable. Actually. I don't know how often that happens. So I know that when I spoke with you before, one of my questions was how much I'm jumping really fast forward, but I'm going to come back. Mm -hmm. But you talking about getting um, the funding in your first pitch. So you obviously have a stage presence and you can present very well, <clears throat> right? Which is, I think, uh, has a huge impact on presenting when it comes to um investors because i wonder mm -hmm. what the percentage is of people that have a really good product but are just really bad presenters that don't get funding because of absolutely their, right 
Yep. Yeah, definitely. So how important is that? I mean, you've got both sides of the fence, right? From one side to the other side. Like how can somebody be a great presenter and have a really bad product and still get funding and, and go far with that? I've also heard passion is over. They'll take someone with passion over the actual product. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about that and what your thoughts are. Yeah, I would say it is true. It's it's probably more common that someone with loads of charisma gets investment with a kind of average or mediocre product or business over, you know, someone that's very shy or, or doesn't know how to, you know, to, to present on stage or how to sell their vision, but might have a great idea. They just don't know how to communicate it. Because at the end of the day, when an investor is watching a pitch, if the CEO of the company cannot communicate in a short time what it is they're building. You know, if it's too overly technical or too complex and they don't grasp it at first or they don't understand who it's for or what problem it's solving, then they wonder how will you ever be able to convince potential customers to buy in your, right. you know, your product? How will you convince incredible talent to join your team? You know, you have to be convincing as a CEO and you have to know how to communicate your vision. So yes, stage presence and presenting is super important, but even going further than that, communications in general of learning how to sell and communicate your vision um, as a leader of a company is also really, really important. And I think that's one of the skill sets that a lot of tech startups are actually missing. Because very often, if it's a tech-based company, you might have great kind of skills in the technical and product side, but very often they're missing that, you know, that charisma and that personality who can actually bring the dollars in from investors, bring the customers on board, bring the distribution partners on board, bring the great talent on board. And that's someone that you need to have as part of a whole right. rounded team. Right, right. I, I know several times I've listened to pitches or talk to people and they tell me what their company does and I don't have a clue. Like I have to research it to figure out exactly what they're doing or some yeah. websites are so complicated. You're like, I don't even understand like what's going on here or what you're trying to sell. Right. So I think you're from a consumer standpoint, I, um, can understand from an investment standpoint, <laughs> if a consumer can't figure it out, why would an investor want to um, invest? And yeah. I think that goes along with your like um, value proposition in the marketplace and how well you can communicate your value prop yeah. from employee ver and product, right? And understanding the metrics of that and I think your copywriting and those skills had to have been amazing for you. Yeah. Just, there's so many skills from my kind of my past life, let's say that have transferred right. into what I'm doing now that have been so invaluable. Um, and yeah, as you said, copywriting is one of them being able to communicate well, both in, in writing and speaking, you know, face to face has got me further than anything else, I think. Um, right. And, you know, because when you're the non-tech person in the team, you need to do everything that's non-tech. So that means, yes, you need to manage the team and have good people skills, but it also means you need to write marketing content and, you know, um, communicate with customers, you know, via email and newsletters and all sorts of things. So actually being able to write well and effectively is going to be a skill no matter what industry you are in or what product you're building. It's always something that will be useful. Um, right. Yeah. So I'd also recommend brushing up on those skills for, for anyone that's leading a company. Yeah. Do you have any advice on where, 
like what someone can do to brush up on those skills? Do you, do you think like taking a copywriting class is necessary or are there workshops or marketing in general? Just I think writing. It, de it depends. I mean, first of all, it, the big thing is whether or not English is your first language if you're speaking to an international market, because of course, there's a lot of founders who don't have English as their native language. Um, so for example, I've come across this one guy, uh, I think Chris Rowe is his name, who does coaching specifically for non-native speakers to help them to learn to communicate oh. both written and spoken effectively when they're not so comfortable speaking in English or when, you know, if yeah. they just want to kind of hone their, their language skills specifically pertaining to pitching and to presenting and speaking about their products. So, I mean, it's, it's very specific what he does, but I think it's a really valuable tool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it, there, there's different workshops and different coaches, depending on whether you want to just get better at English in general, or whether you want to learn how to pitch specifically, how to present on stage, right. or if you want to do more the marketing and communications written side, then it's better to look at some digital marketing courses or communications. Yeah. Okay, so how far did you take the company um, after you raised two million mm -hmm. or more? Um, and then how long did you stay in that company and what was the result? So I was the CEO and co-founder of that company and I was there, I think, four and a half years in total. Um, we... As you probably hear from so many startups, it was an absolute roller coaster. <laughs> I know this is like an overused <laughs> metaphor, but it's so accurate because we had some really big wins. We ended up having our product. So it was a cloud-based software for minicab and private hire companies. Um, so like a kind of back-end taxi software, just, just okay. as Uber and Lyft were like, just as sort of glimmer in the eye. <laughs> back in 2009, we first came up with the concept and launched in, in 2012. Um, so this was the beginning of a huge surge in that industry of like peer to peer transportation and, you know, on demand services. Um, yeah. yeah. So we grew the company to, I think we had like 23 team members at the largest point and we had, our product was available in, in six different continents. We had clients in hundreds of, uh, well, hundreds of clients in multiple countries um, yeah, so it was going really well, but then there was also times when it went really badly and we almost went bankrupt more than once. Um, the, the software crashed and we had to basically rebuild everything from the ground up and me not coming from a tech background, that's very difficult because you have to delegate everything and put it in someone else's hands. Cause I can't physically do it, you know, the programming side. So you have to really have a lot of trust in your co-founders and your CTO and CPO to, you know, to manage that and lead that. Right. Um, so anyway, I left the company after four and a half years after experiencing a really severe burnout and having a lot of issues with one of my co-founders and, uh, not being on the same page at all about how we wanted to grow the company or what kind of investment we wanted to take in. So there were a lot of challenges and keep in mind, Brooke, at this time I was still below 30. I was still, I think 27 <laughs> when I left the company. So I was That's way out of my depth. <laughs> yeah. I was just so out of my depth and I had no clue what I was doing half the time. And I was just like, well, this is, this is a lot of responsibility. It's really a lot. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was I a very steep learning curve. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Talk about getting thrown into the trenches. That is like yeah. crazy. Okay. So you bring up a very valid point. You bring up burnout, which I know I've experienced it in multiple stages of my life. Mm. Um, and I think founders experience burnout more than they'd like to admit. Um, and they either burn out completely or they burn out and they keep 
somehow pursuing or existing and just trying to, I don't know, make it work. But I think if you push and you, I would love to get your thoughts on this, but my feeling mm. is if you push yourself continuously through burnout and you don't take the time to like reset, I think you'll lose your passion very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I really learned the hardest way possible. Um, because I was the CEO and I felt such a deep responsibility to my team members, you know, it was my responsibility to make sure that we make enough money each month so, so that they can get paid so that they can feed their family. You know, that's a lot right. for a, a young woman to take on. It's a lot for anyone to take on, let alone <laughs> a 20 some odd year old. I mean, yeah. Oof, yeah. Right? And, um, we also had a very volatile personality in the, in the management as well that I had to, um, deal with and so work became quite a toxic environment but i felt like i can't just not go in you know it's not like if you're an employee you can't just quit because i'm one of the major shareholders of the company and it's my company so <laughs> there's no right. quitting um so basically throughout burnout i ignored a lot of the warning signals and red flags and i just kept going in day after day and by the end of that period i was really just like a robot i had to just I think my body as a defense mechanism had just blocked out any feelings or emotions and I would just get up, go into work, operate like a robot and go home to bed. But I was, I struggled with anxiety as well. So I was every lunchtime having a huge panic attack outside the office oh, and then no. coming back, pulling myself together and, and carrying on. You know, maybe it's the combination of this um, British keep calm and carry on attitude <laughs> combined with the anxiety. It was not a good mix. Um, but yeah, I just carried on doing that for far, far too long. Um, and it just, by the end, my cup was completely empty. I never took any time to replenish it. And what I realized the difficult way is that I'm no good to anyone in that state. What made me a good mm -hmm. leader in the early years of the company was because I was charismatic and because I was passionate and because I was energetic. And by the end of it, I had none of that. So I really felt mm -hmm. like I had nothing left to give and I had no more value there. So that's why I, I left ultimately. Yeah, well, I'm thankful that you did for your own health, because I think what happens too is this starts trickling into real health problems and mm. people, you know, it can start with burnout. It can start with stress or anxiety, and then um, it triggers into real health scenarios beyond mental health. And yeah, um, I can, I think that people start getting rather sick. I like the wording you said, your cup was overflowing and so you had nothing to give. Like if you don't take time to fill your cup, empty it first and then fill it however you would like, um, then I think you do end up not being your authentic self. You're just running the motions and your value. I think yeah. that stands for just on a daily basis too. Like if you're, if you worked 10 hour day and you're trying to push through five more, like the value or the quality of work after a certain amount of time, I don't think is really qual high quality because you're just trying to fill a void there. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you by that point, you're just going through the motions. And I mean, I'm still guilty of it now. This was many years ago. So it was about 10 years ago that, that I experienced that. But um, even now, I'm one of these women that I want to have it all and I want to be everything for everybody. And so I, I tend to spread myself too thin and pull myself in too many different directions. So as well as being managing partner at my venture capital fund, which is my main job, I've also got a couple of other freelance engagements and consulting that I do. 
Um, and I'm the lead singer in a band and I do pro bono mentoring for women founders and I'm very active socially and I travel a lot. So it's just, I sometimes people say, Bryony, when are you free for a coffee? And I'm like, oh, I think like 2026. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so I really have to learn to say no sometimes and, and you know, yeah. establish some boundaries to, you know, for self-care. It's really yeah. important. I think that's true though. Um, I think we as women have a harder time at saying no, especially because we're trying to be the all be all, right? Like, um, I think we just take on, we want to be there for our friends emotionally and we want to be there, you know, I mean, guys don't really, I don't think most of them tend to carry as much of the, I want to be all the all, um, type 100%. scenario. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, have you experienced burnout in similar fashions? How do you reset yourself? How do you get rest? Yeah, I mean, it really did catch up with me recently. And because it presented so differently this time to the previous time, I didn't realize it again. <laughs> I just thought, I'm really busy and but it, it's all good stuff. You know, I'm busy, but I'm happy. I'm happily married with my partner. I'm happily, you know, leading my company is, is going quite well. So I thought, well, there's nothing wrong. So it can't be burnout. I'm not unhappy right. in my job or in my life. But yeah, I, I was doing too much. And it started, as you said, just now, Brooke, it started to manifest physically. You know, I started having episodes of extreme exhaustion or like just having, you know, rushes of adrenaline pumping through my veins and getting shaky and just feeling completely overwhelmed at the smallest things. Um, and by the time you reach this point, you're, you're pretty far down the line towards burnout already. Right. Um, yeah. So what I did is, is as soon as I identified that I started communicating it to the people closely around me so that they understood what my needs are. Um, and that I, you know, I explained why I could not overextend myself and I'd have to start saying no to invitations and social engagements and mentoring and things like that. So learning to say no and establishing your boundaries is really important. Carving out that time for, for self-care and rest. And like you said, however, you need to replenish your cup. For me, I find meditation and yoga is fantastic just to recenter um, and, you know, kind of connect to the earth and get out of your head a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I've tried to introduce that a lot more over the last couple of years. And I've just been on holiday as well, which came, it was booked for a long time, but it came at the perfect time because I was literally just about to crack. And then I was like, okay, I'm off to Mexico. I will be speaking to nobody for the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad that you are taking the time to reset and to juvenate yourself and that you've recognized it. So um, hats off to you. That's great. Thank you. Uh, okay. So take us from what you do at 27, 28, whatever age in your 20s you were whenever you left the company mm -hmm. and you had burnout. And then what did you do? How long did you take to figure it out or where, where'd you go from there? So my first mistake at that point was due to financial pressure because, you know, our startup had never made it enough to make me rich. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I've been living on a founder's salary. I couldn't really afford to take a lot of time off. So I basically just jumped out of the frying pan into the fire um, and started another job straight away, which I was at for two years. Um, and there I was the CEO of a uh, a venture builder company called IXDS Labs, which was a spin-off of a very successful design consultancy that was already existing. 
Um, so, I mean, that was kind of completely different to what I had been doing, but they were already experimenting with building some startups internally and um, doing some consulting for startups. So they wanted someone with startup experience, which they were currently lacking in their own team. Um, so that was a bit of an adventure, but again, it was a very high stress work environment. Um, and it was only after that role, I left that after two years when I saw that, that it was kind of like trying to hammer a, a square peg into a round hole because the rest of the whole team is designers and engineers. And then there was me, this, the sole startup person trying out some new business models that, you know, didn't really take. Um, so that, that was again, a, a learning curve. But after that, I took six months off, which was really, really necessary. And during that time, um, I did some CBT therapy. I did some German language courses because I've been living in Berlin for a long time and still was not speaking the language so well. Um, so, you know, it was just kind of investing in myself and actually not taking the first job offers that landed on my plate, but really taking the time to think about what is it that I really want to do next. And what yeah. I found was that I love helping other entrepreneurs and other first-time founders to find their way and to be build investable businesses, especially mm -hmm. women founders, because I can obviously relate to, to their journey. Um, so that's when I joined Brink, which is a global accelerator program. Um, and now they're an, uh, one of the private investors in my current fund. But for one year, I was running their accelerator program and they moved me to Bahrain in the Middle East. So that was another adventure. <laughs> That's a, so fascinating. I, first of all, I love that you could, you just pick up and go and wherever the opportunity is. Oh, we're going, I'll just move to Berlin. Oh, okay. I'm going to, I think that's so fun. <laughs> I would tell, I would totally do that if I had the chance, um, even now, but, uh, especially in my twenties, young, early thirties, what a blast. So that's super cool. So was it a new accelerator that you were starting and like, you didn't know anyone, right? Did, was it already established there? Like, how did that all work? No, so Brink's an established brand, but their head, their HQ is in Hong Kong. So they've got some offices in China and they had launched in some other countries as well. So they were in Barcelona and they launched in Poland. But this was the first accelerator program they were launching brand new for the Middle East and North Africa region. Um, so they were hoping to get startups from all the surrounding areas, you know, like from Dubai and from Egypt and um yeah, because Bahrain is a very, very tiny island. And a lot of people, when I said that, they don't have a clue where it is. But basically, it's between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, where you have Dubai. So they're the places okay. that people okay. normally have heard of. Um, yeah, but we were serving that whole region. And I came over as the head of the accelerator program for IoT and connected hardware, which is a field I'd got into during my time at IXDS because they specialized in those topics. Um yeah, and it was great because it was a completely brand new nascent startup ecosystem. So we really had to go back to the drawing board to communicate to the, the local people, like what exactly is a startup and, um, you know, why is it different to any other type of business? And it was a very interesting cultural experience as well, because obviously the culture is so different there too in Europe mm -hmm. and just the mentality that when there's, there's a lot of young people and especially a lot of women graduating university with um, degrees around com computing or IT, but inevitably they will either go to work in one of the major corporations or a bank, or they'll just stay home with the family. That tends to be kind mm. of the three main routes that someone would take after university. So <laughs> this whole concept of, you know, starting your own business that's super high risk and is very likely to fail was just not really comprehended. So there was a lot of education to be done. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Were there a lot of applicants or a lot of 
I'm assuming you had to apply like other accelerators or did you just, wasn't an open entry? Um, yeah, there was an application process that was the same procedure as any of the other global accelerators from Brink. So people would apply online and send their pitch deck and answer certain questions. And then we had an investment committee where we would qualify them. So that was really my training to later become an investor because this whole process of you know receiving applications, doing due diligence on the company and making a decision based on different factors of you know how, how strong is the team and the product, the product market fits and you know the size of the market opportunity and the value proposition. So we were assessing all of these things and choosing who would go through. Um, of course, for the Middle East and North Africa region, there was a lot less applicants than they got you know, in Hong Kong, for example. Um, so the first cohort was only three companies. It's very That's small right. because- You got to start yeah, somewhere. You got to start somewhere. And also, you know, because I was the one that was leading the program and delivering the workshops as well. Um, some of the content was coming from the Brink HQ, but some of it was also custom designed for this cohort. So I was the one leading that. And uh, at the same time, I was leading workshops for our corporate partner, Batelco. They were a, a, a telecoms company for the region. So yeah, that was, uh, it, it was a lot for me to do, but it was really great. And um, we were also training up some of the younger um, local Bahaini who would then take over my role after I left because mm -hmm. it was a temporary contract yeah. to, to set things up. So what kind of ideas did they have? I'm curious what kind of problems they were trying to solve over there, mm. like from their perspe perspective versus here. Yeah, it, it is. It's quite unique as well to the region because you have there a lot of desert. So there's a lot of sand, a lot of heat, um, but it's a huge region for oil and gas. So that's one major industry that, that you know, is kind of ripe for disruption because, um, yeah, there's, there's certain ways, for example, IoT and, and remote sensors can be used for maintenance of oil and gas um, rigs mm. and, and mm -hmm. industries. That's one industry that was very interesting. Another one that, so in our first cohort, we had someone as well that did a smart device for palm trees because they have a huge industry for, for dates. So the palm trees that give you dates um, is something where apparently the trees are subject to infestation from some sort of pest. Mm -hmm. And these smart sensors would basically keep and track and measure the tree so that if these pests infect a tree, it can be isolated and treated before it infects the whole farm ah, and they lose that's their yield. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So not something that had ever occurred to me because we don't have palm tree farms over here. But um, yeah, again, it was a very local problem, but a very big problem. So it was fantastic yeah. to see that. It would be interesting to see all of these companies to see who's in business and who made it like where they are today, right? Like going back five, 10 years, however long, I think that would be fascinating for all accelerators to do actually. Yeah. Um, just because it's really interesting and to find out like what their story is along the way, like why they choose to give up or why they choose to move on or where they, you know, their story. Yeah. Uh, super cool. Okay, so then you did that for a year? About a year, yes. About a year. And then where'd you move? Uh, then I came back to Berlin, got married two weeks later. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. Were you dating? <laughs> I did. I was with the guy the whole time, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We So he actually moved to Bahrain with me. Um, my husband okay. is super supportive of my career. And at the time when I got the job offer, he was still kind of floundering in his own career and wasn't sure what he wanted to do. So he just came for, for me and uh, was basically my 
my personal driver and was just doing some freelance copywriting while he was over there. So the trip was a bit boring for him actually, but for my career it was fantastic. Um, yeah, but he's super supportive and we, we had to plan the whole wedding from abroad, which was, it was a bit tricky because I didn't get to do the whole, you know, trying on a dress with my mom and my friends. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So we kind of had to organize everything online, but yeah, the, the wedding took place as soon as we got back to Berlin. And uh, I've been living in Berlin since then, but my fund is actually based in Warsaw in Poland. So I, I tend to travel between the two these days. Gotcha. Now, how far away is that? Um, so it's about six it's not- hours by train or like one hour flight. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Okay. So in Bahrain, I'm just curious, what, how big is that island? I mean, you don't have to give me like the square miles or anything, but... Uh, and what's it like to live there? Like, what you guys? What was there to do? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, there's there's not a lot to do. Um, so it's one of the small countries in the Gulf region where it is legal to drink alcohol. So that was good for me because I like a glass of wine. But there's not many places you can drink. It's mostly the five star hotels have bars where it's about fifteen dollars for a glass of wine. Really? Um, and they had so a couple of restaurants. Small- or bars? They have restaurants where you're not allowed to drink alcohol. Bars are not so much of a thing, but they had a couple of social clubs where you had a lot of other expats and the drinks are more affordable. So I would sometimes hang out at those. They'd have like the kind of British rugby club and things like that. Ah. I'm not into sports at all, but there was good, a good bar there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a really tiny island and it's too hot to be outside most of the time. So it's not like you can lie around on the beach. You'll get heat stroke. And also the the dust storms are quite intense. So most of the time you're living indoors and you're driving door to door. Um, it's basically just like a desert with some highways. It's it's. Uh, I don't miss that part about it. Obviously, the yeah. people are lovely. The food's lovely. Um, but the yeah the 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 environment and the weather is is a bit intense. So what's there? What's the draw to live there? Like why do these people? Why why is there a community there? Um, well, the whole region is very oil rich. So to give you, a, you asked about how big Bahrain is. I don't know in square meters, but there's, there's about 800,000 Bahraini nationals globally. Like that's the total number of their population. So that's, that's not so many. And I think on the mm-hmm. island, there's about 1.2 million. So that includes all of the expats and the workers. Um, but you know, they lead a very nice lifestyle. There's there's a lot of um, social divide because they have some very poor workers that they bring from other countries like Bangladesh, mm. which are not treated so well. So there's still some human rights issues. They can be treated very well. Depends on who you get as a boss, honestly. Mm. Um, as with so, anything, I guess. Yeah. yeah so it, it there was definitely some times I had to hold my tongue about you know the the level of social development because um, things are done very differently there. But you know there's that's an established kingdom. It's not a democracy. So you don't have full freedom of speech like we do in Berlin. And uh, it was it was tough to swallow. But at the same time, you can see that the country's making very big strides in trying to be more progressive and having more women's rights. So I was just happy to be a part of that journey. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you moved back and you got married. And then what? Mm-hmm. And then I started my current investment fund, which has been running for four years. Um, I knew that this was coming because it was a long tender process with the Polish Development Fund. So it's actually 80% public money and 20% private investors that we bought on board. Um, and then my, myself and my business partner are the two managing partners in the fund. And yeah, this, this came about through my connection with working with Brink. So they're one of the private investors in the fund. Um, 
And yeah, the guy that actually bought me in or like recommended me for that role, uh, he used to run Brink Poland. Um, and I knew him from mm. my previous days in Berlin. So he, he kind of endorsed me and said that I would be a great fit to work with my business partner. Because again, my business partner is not so much a people person, not so much a communicator. <laughs> <laughs> so he needed someone like me. <laughs> I'm noticing a trend. I'm noticing a trend. A trend I will be breaking with my next role because <laughs> I, have a, I have a habit of working with complicated men. <laughs> uh, okay, so what kind of companies do you invest in and how do you get your um, companies, portfolio companies? And we'll start there. Yeah, so my my fund invests, our average ticket size is about half a million dollars, and we can invest a total of one million per company. So if the company's performing well after we invest, we'll invest the other half a million. Um, and we invest in early stage, so pre-revenue, but there's normally MVP or pilot stage of a company. Um, and we do IoT and hardware. We do some other deep tech sectors like artificial intelligence and cybersecurity um, and food tech, for example. I personally, I'm super passionate about the environment. So I'm really interested to look at any, any companies that are for profit, but also have an environmental sustainability aspect. And mm -hmm. when I do move on to whatever my next venture or adventure will be, which, you know, maybe will be starting my own fund in Berlin or maybe joining an existing fund as a partner. Um, I'd really like to focus on climate tech, um, because, you know, the climate emergency is, is real and overbearing and, I want to be able to invest and make a profit, but still be able to sleep well at night, knowing that this technology will be used to make the world a better place. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. And do you have any demographics involved in your investments? Um, Geographic? I obviously, well, yeah, we're very much Poland focused because we have the Polish Development Fund as our lead investor. Mm -hmm. Um, so we always look at Polish companies or companies within Europe that have a presence in Poland. We can only okay. invest in Europe. Um, there's certain limitations of our, of our fund because it's public money that it has to be a European, uh, company and a Poland focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's the core demographic. And of course I, I want to invest in more women founders. We have right, a few. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, do you have a focus on, um, diverse, Diverse founders, you know, sometimes I feel like right now there's a lot of push in, in some VC firms are really focusing more on diversity mm. and putting an emphasis on that. Or is it open? Yeah, it's completely open. At the end of the day, I personally want to invest in more women and more diverse founders. I do more of that in my private time in terms of, as I mentioned, I do a lot of mentoring. So programs like FemGems, which is all women founders. Um, or there's Founderland for women of color. So, you know, I want to promote diversity and support these women entrepreneurs. But with our fund, mm -hmm. we, you know, we're open to all applications. And the demographic of Poland is super white. And yeah, I was like most <laughs> of the companies are run by men. <laughs> right. So right. It's, it's not like, it's not a lot of options. We have about 25% of our portfolio with women founders. Uh, how is the uh, startup world in Poland? Is it pretty happen? Yeah, but only as of fairly recently. Um, okay. So about, yeah, so five years ago, Poland got a huge cash injection from, um, from the EU for innovation, for tech development, for startups. So that's when they were looking for people to be able to run venture capital funds because there was suddenly a lot more cash available on the market to be invested. Um, so that's when the opportunity came for me because they were looking for more people with startup experience who, who knew, you know, how to, 
um, how to do the due diligence and how to make smart investments, which I'd learned through Brink. And also I learned as well by being a founder, because when you do multiple rounds of investment with a startup, you get very used to all of the legal documentation of, you know, going through signing a term sheet and then the full investment agreement and the negotiations with lawyers and cap tables. So, you know, I'd done all of that for myself. So it just meant now I was kind of assessing it from, for other people. Um, yeah, but Poland since then has, has seen a huge boost. Um, it's, it's a very fast developing economy. I think it's the fastest developing economy in Europe actually. Um, but that's, that's been a a big rush over the last few years and I'm waiting to see if it's cannibalizes itself, (laughs) um, or if it, you know, if it gets better and better, because right now there is some fantastic innovation in Poland, but also there's almost too much capital available on the market. So everyone's fighting for the best, you know, the best startups Uh, to invest into. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so how do you get your companies? Are they part of accelerators or from an investment standpoint? Yeah. Where do you have people reach out to you just randomly, which I'm sure you do, but how do you vet out your applicants or your companies? Um, we have multiple streams and channels. So we have inbound and outbound. First of all, our website um, has a direct application uh, with, you know, you click a button and you can fill in a form and, and submit your pitch deck. All right. But most of the investments we do end up coming from our personal networks, from myself and my business partner that we've built over the last 10 years through being deeply involved in the startup ecosystem. So I'm constantly attending tech startup conferences and events. Um, Networking is one of my strong suits. Um, Again, that comes from being a people person and not being so shy about uh, striking up a conversation. I'm a huge advocate of networking. um, And so many of the great opportunities in my life have come through just one guy I happened to meet at a conference or that I was speaking with at another conference, you know, and it leads to great opportunities. Like just recently I was invited to the world economic forum in Davos with all these world leaders, just because I had met another guy speaking at a conference and he invited me as his guest. So, you know, you never know who you're going to be talking to. Um, That's amazing. Are you going? I already went. That was, oh, yeah. uh, that was last month. Yeah. How last month it? in Switzerland. It was amazing. Half the time I thought, what the hell am I doing here? But you know, <laughs> But it was such a great opportunity great. and I, I'm, I met people who I hope might be LPs or, you know, investors in my future funds because, you know, there's a lot of people there with very deep pockets who want to change the world because the climate was a really big topic on the agenda this year. Um, yeah, so I, hopefully I've made some connections that will, will come in handy. But yeah. yeah, so basically meeting startups at events and things like this, we end up following up with the ones that we find interesting and a lot of the investments we end up doing come that way. A lot of the inbound applications we get online are just no fit for the fund. Um, ah. Either they're they're too late stage, or they're not based in Europe, or the the valuation is like ten times higher than we would consider because it's you know a San Francisco company or something. Right. But uh, yeah, it's all about I, who you know networking. It is. It is. So, if you were giving advice to other female founders, or it doesn't have to be female, it can just be other founders that are starting mm. up that want to do. Um, this sounds like it could be seed or Series A to me. Half million. Like, are you a lead? Yeah. Do you lead the investment, or are you a follow up? Okay. With with a lead investor in most cases, and yeah, I'd say it's a seed seed round. Seed. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think we've covered some of them actually throughout this conversation. I'll just reiterate a couple of them. One is 
presentation, presentation, presentation and communication skills and being able to present whatever idea you have in a clear fashion um, and hone up your public speaking skills. I'd say that's the number one thing that we covered, right? Number two yeah. sounds like networking as far as getting your foot in the door. Um, I know I've been guilty in the past of submitting online applications. I don't know how, what the ratio is. It's probably like sending out email marketing. Your open rate or open click rate on those as far as success rates and actually getting funding from submitting them online. I don't know. I, I don't feel like the ROI on that's great, but what other things do you look for in a founder and what advice can you give them? Um, so first of all, just to bounce off something you just said, I still think it's always worth applying online. Yes, the ROI is pretty small. However, we do look at them and your company name will then be in our minds if we happen to meet later down the line. So I think mm. part of it is not expecting like that you will definitely get a yes from that first application, but just getting yourself in front of the investors and getting your brand familiar with them so that when they do come across you again, it's, it's, you know, it's already in their brain is a good start. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so what I look for in the company, so as we mentioned, the team is the most important thing because everything else in the company, whether it's the, the product or the business model or, you know, the UX design, all of that can be improved. It can be iterated. It can be pivoted, but the people that are running the company, we're looking at, are they competent for starters, you know, do they have any industry expertise? Do they have a complementary skill set to each other in the team? Um, and are they capable of executing on this vision and delivering what they say they will? So I'm also looking um, at EQ over IQ. So when I do meet the founders and talk to them, which we always do before we decide on any investment, I'm, I'm checking, you know, are they, are they authentic? Are they being honest and transparent with us? Um, do they seem in any way like volatile or, you know, often you need to trust your gut as well. Like, do I get a bad gut feeling about this person? <laughs> right, so right. It, it is important to, you know, to, to get, to make a good impression personally, because you are going to become a shareholder in their company and you are going to be working with that person for the next several years to come, um, towards the same goal. So you need to be able to somehow like relate to them and get on the same page. Um, yeah. So assessing that kind of the personalities in the company is very important. And then when it comes to what they are building, we're looking for something that solves a real world problem. So I think several years ago, there was this trend, especially in the IOT industry, for example, of things that were kind of like fun or gimmicky, but, you know, don't have any longevity. So that's why I really like B2B, like business, um, business to business companies, because quite often they're inevitably solving a real world problem that's not currently being sol solved. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're doing something directly for consumers, it needs to be something that's going to make someone's life better or easier and something that's easy for them to adopt by, you know, not having to massively change their current behaviors. So again, it's like, is this just a nice to have product or is it a need? And we're looking for those needs. Right. When it comes to the founding team or the team, when you talk about importance, if you have a non-technical founder and you're especially if you're in your world of IOT and hardware and things of that nature, how important is it to have a tech co-partner or a technical person on the team coming it from? Is, yeah. It's pretty important. We've seen different structures. So for example, 
We have got one company where most of the tech development is outsourced to a third party, but it's the third party that the company has worked with for a very long time. So they have like an established relationship and they know the quality of service from this third party. Um, and also I mentor one solo woman founder who again has like outsourced the tech side, but I think in, it's okay if they don't have that on board at the very beginning, but they need to maybe identify a person who could join. Because in the early stages of a company, you don't always have the money that you need to pay a CTO, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but if your core product is tech-based, if you are developing some software or hardware that is going to be the core product, you need a CTO, even once it's built, to maintain it. You know, These right. things are not just like you build it and then it's done and then you leave it alone forever especially with with software it needs to be constantly updated there needs to be bug fixes there needs to be new feature development um so yeah it's it's pretty important to have them on board in the long term right okay how important is it to have customers or revenue Depends on the stage. Do you mean for our fund specifically or in general? Well, like some companies, do you require at least some revenue or are you just MVP? We, we invest in pre-revenue companies, but we want to see some form of early traction. So that okay. might mean that you have interested customers who are ready to sign up once the product is launched, or you have some test or some pilot customers who are already using the products, but are not paying yet. Um, or, you know, they might be paying, but it's just kind of still a, a beta version. So it's not the final commercial product yet. Um, so it, it is great to show some sort of traction. It might, it might not even be test customers, but, you know, you might have a landing page where people have been signing up saying like, hey, I'm interested. I'm joining a mailing list. I want to know more about this. It's just showing mm -hmm. that there's some demand and some excitement about the product mm -hmm. um, is, is definitely something that's essential for, for us or for most funds that would invest at our stage. Yeah, I would think their market research information would be valuable as well to know their market and where they fit in. Yeah, I mean, we want to know things like the competitive landscape. So there might not be any direct competitors to what you're building, but there's definitely going to be indirect ones of, you know, other companies that might be solving the same problem, but a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not important to be the only person building what you're building. In fact, that's normally a red flag because... If there are other products out there that are in a similar space, it's kind of a market validation showing that there is already demand for a product like that, but maybe you can do it better or cheaper or faster. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, so we want to look at who are the other players, who are the other stakeholders in, in this industry segment, and where do you lie in comparison yeah. to them? Yeah. Do you do investments like a certain time of year or so many a year? Um, we, so we, we have an open rolling application okay. process, so we can only, we're a small team. We're only four people in the core team. And then we have a few more as board advisors or shareholders. Um, but we can only process so many deals at one time. Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, yeah, we, we only do about five to six investments per year or companies per year. And then some, we'll have a couple of follow on rounds as well. Um, but yeah, it takes a, a couple of months actually to do the whole process of everything from the first application to the due diligence, to drafting the investment agreement with lawyers and having an investment committee and then finalizing oh, sure. and transferring the funds. So especially yeah. private investors can do it more quickly, but because we have public money behind us, there are certain, there's a lot of bureaucracy, let's say <laughs> there's red tape. We have to right. jump through certain hoops in terms of the administrative side. Um, and that's just something we can't get around because 
because it's public money, there has to be certain processes that are followed. Sure. Okay. One more question for you uh, when it comes to VCs. Um, how involved are you after you invest in a company? Because there's a lot of mixed feelings and emotions about this mm. out there. We are pretty hands-on because, of course, we want the company to succeed. And if we see that they're not succeeding in a certain way, we want to help if we can. Um, but we basically take it on a case-by-case -case basis as to how much support each company needs. Sometimes if they are serial entrepreneurs and this is their third company, they pretty well know what they're doing already. We have monthly meetings with all of our portfolio companies to check in with them, see what's their progress, what are their goals for the next month. Um, we help them with things like their, their marketing and communications, if they've got any news that they want to spread um, to build their brand recognition. And most importantly, when it comes to the time that they want to raise follow-on funding or their Series A after we've invested, we're helping with our investor network to, to get them this follow-on mm. funding. Um, yeah, so we, we try to stay as involved as possible, but it depends on what the team needs and how um, well-equipped they already are with their own team. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So, uh, how can we help you? Like, what can we do for you in your stage in your career? Well, this is actually going to be quite a transformative year for me because right now we are in the final year of our investment phase of this fund. And this okay. is my first VC fund. So right now it's reaching that exciting time where I'm waiting for my first exits or mergers and acquisitions from my portfolio, because those are the real KPIs that investors need, right? To show that they uh, yeah. have been successful. That's um, exciting. Yeah. So by the end of this year, we will have invested all of the fund. And then we just have this period where we're doing portfolio management and basically trying to help the companies to be sold or acquired or to maybe even IPO. Um, but at the same time, during that period, my hours will scale way back from what we're currently doing. And I'll be looking for my, you know, what my next steps will be. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm really excited about climate tech. So I'm you know, I'm, I'm starting to put the feelers out to see, you know, would it be a good idea for me to join an existing company or an existing fund that's already working in the climate tech and environmental sustainability space? Or should I think about actually setting up my own fund? Because, you know, if you want a job to be done well, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if I started something myself, I already have a really great network of investors and LPs who, who could potentially, um, you know, invest into this new fund and I would be able to build it with the diversity that I want to see um, and, you know, invest into the projects that I really care about without the limitations I, I currently have. So that is definitely one potential route. So if that resonates with any of your listeners, get in touch with me. That's awesome. Yay. I can't wait to see what happens and what you choose. But if there's anything that we can help you with, or um, I'll be thinking of anyone that's in that world uh, to make intros to, I'd be happy to do so as well. I'm cool. super. Well, I am so, so, so thankful that you joined us today. And it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. You're um, a bundle of joy, shall we say. Uh, oh, thank you, Brick. You're welcome. Uh, and all the great advice that you gave. I love your story. It's fascinating. You, I, I'm certain that you're going to experience so many more uh fun, exciting experiences in your life. And uh, yeah, let us know how we can support you and tell the uh, audience too, where they can find you if they want to connect. 
Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn, Bryony Cooper. And I have my own website as well. That's www.bryonycooper.com. Perfect. We'll include those links too below. So thanks again, um, Brandy. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, subscribe to our channel, The Wild Feather. If you want to learn more about our guests or their products and companies, you can visit our website at thewildfeatherpodcast.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter to receive info on our upcoming episodes. Follow us on social media to get the latest deets. We're on all of them, so pick your favorite and follow us. And if you're a founder and need funding or accelerator info or business resources, you can go to our website, thewildfeatherpodcast.com and find some valuable information and resources there. No matter if you're a founder, your investor, or what your path is, just remember you were born with wings. <laughs> <laughs>